Hello and welcome to our podcast series Inside Impact Investing. My name is Hans Tegeman, Chief Economist at Triodos Bank. This season I'm diving into the concept of economic transformation and transformative investments. By talking to different thought leaders, I want to find out what is needed to make our economy more sustainable and how to finance the transitions that are needed in society. From the energy and the food transition to a more regenerative economy and a more equal distribution of wealth. Thanks for tuning in and joining me on this journey. Dr. Jennifer Hinton is a researcher at Lund University and a senior research fellow at the Schumacher Institute. Her work focuses on how societies relate to profit and how this relationship affects global sustainability challenges. She holds a double PhD in economics and sustainability science. As an activist, she collaborates with civil society organizations, businesses and policymakers to transform the economy so that it can work for everyone with the ecological limits of the planet. Welcome, Jennifer. Thanks so much for having me, Hans. Yes, we had already some conversations about post-growth and degrowth and what it means and how it works and how it relates to finance. And post-growth is also at the core as most of your academic work. Why do you call it post-growth and not degrowth? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's one that I get pretty often, especially now that degrowth is really taking off, which is exciting. Yep. So I think it's more just a matter of framing. So for me, I was attracted initially as sort of an activist and a researcher to the term post-growth because it it sort of draws your attention to what comes after this yep. growth-based economy. And I really wanted to work on that solutions part. Degrowth is also working on that. A good friend of mine, I think he's been on your podcast, Tim Parikh, yep. uh, sort of says that there's this distinguishing factor in terms of we need to have a degrowth transition to get to a post-growth economy. I agree on that. And you said something interesting. You said as a researcher and an activist, what's the difference? Oh, well, that's that's a big discussion that's happening more and more in research these days because there is so much more activism happening among researchers. For me, it's more just been my journey that when I finished my master's degree, I didn't stay in academia. I didn't go straight on to a PhD. I got out into the quote unquote real world for a while. And there I became an activist. You know, I, there I became passionate about getting beyond the growth-based profit-driven economy that we have right now so that we have some sort of hopeful and flourishing future for humanity. So that's sort of my activist part. And I was in Greece at the time, my husband is Greek, and I, we were living through this crazy economic crisis. Mm -hmm. Maybe you heard about it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and so I was working with a lot of local initiatives on the ground in Greece that were trying to provide like food and like emergency pharmacies, community pharmacies that had opened up. And I was trying to bridge those to this larger international movement for a sustainable economy. Yeah. And so that's sort of where the activism comes in. And then I got into a PhD and became more of a academic. researcher as well. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that that's that's really nice because that really ties the practical experience that you had also probably at that time. Uh, so I'm I'm an economist, so at that time I was working at another mainstream bank and saying something, yeah, the Greek crisis, it's all bad and they don't get any money, so they, they need to do more. They have to have their fiscal balance in order, but it is in the end always about people. And this is also maybe the core. So so let's let's go to the key of your work because... Part of what economists have always been trained in 
is that business need to have profit. That's the reasons why they exist. And economies need to grow. Um, yes. <laughs> so it's, it's very simple. And then the story is, if you grow, if you make profit, we have all welfare for everybody. We have an income, we have jobs, and the more is always better. And your work concentrates on the relationship with business and post-growth or degrowth, if, if I can say that. And you said already, so we have maybe a degrowth phase and then we go to post-growth. But what should happen on a real practical business level to get there? Yeah, and I, I actually also like to sort of reframe this kind of question mm -hmm. because it often is asked like, okay, so we know we need a degrowth transition. We know we need a post-growth economy. What can and should businesses do in this transition? And that way of asking the question almost assumes that businesses are sort of like an attachment to the larger picture, whereas I see businesses as the core, core. of yeah. the economy, right? We have a market economy right now, and that's made up of businesses. Businesses are the key player. And right now, the dominant business structure in our market is a for-profit business structure or, you know, a yeah. for-profit category of different business structures. And what does that mean? That means that these businesses are legally set up to pursue private financial gain for their private owners and investors, like you mentioned before. And that sounds really common sense to most of us, because as you mentioned, we're all sort of educated and we grew up in this context that tells us that that's the only way or that's the natural way for, for businesses and markets to be, is to be profit-driven. But actually that's driving, that's at the heart of most of our crises today, really. Yep. So it's driving inequality, right? Because these businesses, most of these businesses are set up to channel their profit to the private owners who then accumulate it because that's how we define success in this economy is to get rich. At the same time, there's an inherent incentive to keep wages as low as possible because the lower the wages, the more profit, right? So we have wage stagnation on the one hand and wealth accumulation by a handful of business owners on the other hand, and that's driving inequality. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, in order to deliver all of this profit to their owners, they have to sell more and more stuff all the time. So they're using advertising and um, bad product design even to get consumers to buy more and more of stuff that we don't even need. And that's, of course, devastating the environment and driving the climate crisis and all of that. So really our business structure, our for-profit business structure and this profit-driven market is at the core of our crises today. So we can't have a degrowth transition or a sustainable post-growth economy without addressing and, and fundamentally changing our core business structures. Yeah, and part of what you said is this is about the core of the business structure, but it's also that business is allowed to do things that are detrimental for most of the other people or they don't profit from it. And then there's always my, my question, and that's still, I come back to the same question. Where do you start then? Do you start with the legal structures, with the market ordering, or do you start with the business itself? Or can you say we have to do everything together? Yeah, that the option C, I think yeah, we have to yeah. do everything together. Um, yeah, often, you know, when I present the work that I've done, which is actually I critique and analyze the problems of the for-profit economy, but I've also been working on an alternative economic model for, you know, a post-growth economic mm -hmm. model called the not-for-profit world, which is imagines, uh, you know, what if we had a market economy made up 
completely of not-for-profit businesses, that then, you know, they don't have private owners that can take the profit. Instead, all of the profit goes back into their legally binding social benefit mission. So whether that's helping the homeless or helping kids with learning disabilities or just getting people out into nature, whatever that is. And so that fundamentally changes the market. And then a lot of people are are sort of like, well, that's really common sense. That's Mm -hmm. what the economy should be, right? It should be set up to meet people's needs and make sure that the environment we live in is healthy. Why don't we have that now? And how can we transition? And it's really that we need to change everything all at once. And who does that? We all have to play a role in that, right? And if if we zoom in a little bit on, on, on those business models, you touched upon already upon ownership structures, but what elements are there in, in a business model that needs to change to be uh, beyond growth or post-growth or whatever? So my work is, has really focused on this level of legal structure. Mm-hmm. I wrote a paper for my PhD called The Five Dimensions of Business. And it sort of looks at like, because that's obviously not all that needs to change in business no. and markets. We need, you know, a lot of other things to change. What are those things? Well, a lot of the focus right now is on strategy. You know, I would say most of the focus when we talk about sustainable business or even in degrowth circles, when they talk about degrowth compatible businesses, it tends to focus on strategy. You know, like yep. we need circular businesses that are doing, you know, producing things in a certain way that they can be recycled or repaired or whatever. We need ethical business practices. And this strategy is extremely important, but it also has to be aligned with the the underlying legal purpose, right? If if we're just stuck on strategy, but the legal purpose of our businesses and our markets is still just to make as much money as possible for investors and owners, then that strategy is going to get distorted by that legal purpose in one way or another. So... yeah, you touch upon one of my biggest frustrations that that, that you see that that parts of businesses in the strategy or they say we do, especially in the circular business models, that's really frustrating because there you see a lot of 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 circularity washing. So so the mm. intention and the use of the strategy is okay, but the underlying purpose still is profit. And that leads to all kinds of rebounds effects and in the end on the macro level to still or even more unsustainable economy because you can get all kinds of lock-ins. Yeah, absolutely. So my thinking was, is there not an ordering that we should address how you create a a business model, a degrowth, a post-growth business model, starting with the legal structure and the the for-profit part and the rest will follow from that? Is it not maybe simpler than talking about everything and saying, okay, let's start there and then we get somewhere. Yeah, so I would say we, we start there and then it, it is more natural, right? That's one of my arguments when I am looking at for-profit versus not-for-profit markets is that, you know, the kinds of things that we know we need right now, which is like taxes to redistribute the wealth that's accumulated in a few hands or regulations to protect the environment and workers, Part of the reason that's not getting implemented is because of this inherent incentive in the profit-driven market yeah. and for-profit businesses to make as much money as possible, right? So what does align with those kinds of regulations and taxes and lifestyles, even like a sustainable lifestyle, <laughs> is yeah. at odds with the profit-driven market, right? So all of those things can flow much more naturally from a market that is oriented towards meeting society's needs. So it's just so much more aligned and addresses a lot of the barriers that we face in being more sustainable today. Yeah. 
So this is really trying to conceptually understand what's going on and to help also our listeners a, a little bit. Are there a, examples currently that we say, okay, but this looks a little bit like what we want to have and in terms of, yeah, do you have some examples maybe? Absolutely. And a lot of these examples tend to be much more local. And so they're not necessarily like nationally or internationally recognizable examples. So credit unions and mutual insurance companies, community-owned renewable energy projects, Mm -hmm. community-owned agriculture and community-supported agriculture, all of those tend to be uh, not-for-profit Secondhand charity shops are all not for profit. There's a lot more like really circular businesses, like recycling companies that sort of have this really nice way of combining social and environmental missions where they're, they're recycling electronics. For instance, there's this company in Colorado in the U S where I'm from called blue star recyclers. So they recycle electronics, which is great for the environment, right? But they're also employing people who have disabilities to do that work. So that's part of their social benefit mission. So it's really actually beautiful and diverse, the world of these not-for-profit businesses. A couple of larger ones that most people are familiar with would be like the YMCA, Mm -hmm. you know, this international chain of like gyms and sports and recreation centers. Those are all not-for-profit. Same with the YHA, the Youth Hostel Association in the UK, which has been around for like 90 years or something now. That's a not-for-profit business. So they're really all over. If we turn that around, we talked about the ownership structure, we talked about profits, but you also have written a paper about a limit to profits. And I think it's also good for to understand for our listeners that, yes, of course, you want to make profit, but you have, and I think you did that nicely in, in that paper, to try to understand where the profit comes from. And that there's probably also a limit, not only to the scale of the economy, like planetary boundaries, but there can also be a limit related to the profit of a business. Can you tell a little bit about that? Because I thought the idea is very interesting. Yeah, thanks. I mean, when we think about profit on the business level or the economy level, because I think it's we shouldn't try to separate them too much. No, no, all no, come no. Together, right? yeah. mm, but I think there's two things, right? And one is what we've already talked about is what happens to the profit. Does it end up being accumulated by people who don't really need it? Or is it getting recycled, circulated back to where it's needed most in the community? And then the other question, though, is where does it come from? And that's what, what are the sources of profits? So that's what I cover in this paper. And I claim that you can boil them down to four main sources. Profit comes either from exploitation of nature. And we see that all the time, right? Especially in like industries that are like primary industries that are either drilling for oil or cutting down trees directly. That's Clearly, they're profiting from yeah, the exploitation of nature. Or polluting water or whatever. Polluting water. Or yep. even like you think about all of this plastic packaging that companies yep. are putting on things. You know, nobody's paying for that. That's the exploitation of nature that's allowing them to make a profit from that cheap packaging. Then there's the exploitation of, of people. And that can be exploitation of workers. So that's, you know, suppressing wages or even forced labor. I mean, it's appalling, but there's billions of dollars of profit made every year from forced labor, not to mention then also suppressed wages. But also the the exploitation of consumers. We're seeing that right now with things like shrinkflation, where you can go to the store and buy a package of 
let's say, a bag of chips that you used to buy. Now they're putting fewer chips in there, but you're yeah. paying the same price, right? So you can also exploit consumers and you can exploit society at large. Like when companies use tax havens or avoid paying taxes, they're exploiting all of us in yeah. a sense for their profit. And then there's two sort of okay ways to make a profit. So two sources of profit that could align with sustainability. And the first is when willing and informed consumers are okay with contributing to the profit. And so a clear example that I use in the paper of this is like when I go to a secondhand charity shop, say I buy a shirt for 30 euros mm -hmm. and I know it's a used shirt and it's not worth 30 euros and it was probably donated to them in the first place. But I'm happy to contribute to their profits because I know that they're going to use it to help homeless people or help people who are facing food scarcity or something. Yeah. So that's the willing and informed consumer source of profit. And the last source of profit is efficiency gains. Yeah. Um, and this is sort of where that story that you referred to, like the the capitalist story sort of imagines that all profit just comes from, from efficiency, efficiency and innovation. Yeah. 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 But like I said, if you, if you run the numbers and I haven't run all the numbers, it would be an interesting exercise, but how much profit actually comes from efficiency gains versus yeah. exploitation of nature and people. Yeah, This is also very interesting. This is also what we try to do currently at Triodos Bank, trying to calculate from all the finance and investments we have, what is the impact Impact is mostly, even for us, negative because every business has some impact on uh, nature, like you said, on social systems, but also on, on finance, of course. So we take all the, what we call capitals that you have in the economy and say, okay, what's your total impact? And of course, in most of the cases, you see that the financial impact is positive <laughs> <laughs> and the rest is negative. And that really relates, that, that, that's also why I liked your story, because that's what you also observe in your, if you really look into the numbers, that a lot of the profits that are made are made on behalf of nature and people. And yes. people quite often forget that. Yeah, it comes directly from, from harm and exploitation. Yeah, and that's capitalism, right? It's an ex yeah. expanding system that needs everything, new things to get into the system to get a profit. Before people start thinking that we're Marxists, let's go to finance. We did not discuss, because we don't have the time, all the details of the business models and all the details of degrowth and post-growth, but I think it's interesting to also have your thoughts on finance, because we work at the bank, and I think banks and finance is at the core of the current system. And the question is, can finance also have a role in a post-growth or degrowth economy? Absolutely. Well, I think it has to, right? Just like I said, for businesses, banks and, and finance are the core of the economy and we can't have a degrowth or post-growth transition without banks and finance also making a, a pretty radical transformation. Mm -hmm. And let's not forget that banks are businesses. So they also have a legal structure and yep. can be for profit or not for yep. profit. And so that's really important when we're talking about banks and financial institutions. One of the first things that needs to happen is also to transition those away from for profit to not for profit legal structures so that they're legally bound to create social benefit for their communities rather yep. than to make you know, bank owners tend to be some of the richest people in the world. They don't need more money. So that's one thing. 
finance and banks, I often think about as being like the heart of the economy because mm -hmm. it pumps the blood. It circulates the resources of the economy to where they're needed most, or that's what it should do. And that's right what they now should do. Yeah, they, <laughs> yeah. they just pump it up, I think, nowadays. Right. Yeah. yeah, right now we've got the, the blood all pooling up in one organ. Who yeah. knows which organ that is? I'm yeah. not going to say. But what we need is for all of the organs to get this healthy blood and nutrients, right? And so banks and finance need to do that by, like I said, moving to not-for-profit structures. And what does that really mean? I mean, it goes quite deep because we're talking about investment and finance being made for social benefit rather than to make more money. Mm -hmm. And so that's a really big paradigm shift, right? Yep. Right now we think about investment and it almost is implicit in the word investment and, and finance that of course you want to make as much money as you can, like a return on investment, right? But instead of having financial returns, we need to be investing for social and environmental benefit. That's sort of the paradigm shift there. That What does that mean in terms of more specific structures and institutions? It means that we need to get away from equity-based finance and equity-based mm -hmm. investment because that's for-profit. That's what allows unlimited returns on investment. Because, you know, if as long as, as you own a share in my company, we, we owe you dividends or you have the right to ask for something from this, right? So that's sort of a perpetual relationship. Whereas when we move to donation or debt-based investment, so I'm talking about mm -hmm. loans and bonds here, then, you know, if I pay, if my company pays you back your bond or your loan plus a little bit of interest, then we're done. You, do, I don't owe you anything anymore. Yeah. Um, that also aligns with that limited aspect yeah. that we've been talking about, right? Yeah, so I almost completely agree. <laughs> I think there's, and that also has to do with the phase where we are. I still think there is, if you have a bank or an investment uh, management uh, institution that really wants to contribute to, the, to a transition, you can still make the case for equity-based finance as long as you want to have a transition. If you say, okay, I use my ownership to have agency to transform the company I'm invested in which is quite demanding. That's why I still think venture capital and private equity can be, it's normally a force of evil, but can be a force of good. If you use it in such a way that you, also depending on your own ownership structure, if you use it to have agency in another company to get the transition going. I would say that here we can break it into smaller steps. So for me, the end goal is to get away completely from equity-based mm -hmm. ownership and investments and finance. Given that right now most of the economy is made up of equity-based investment, then we have to like shift it step by step, right? Yep. So that could be one of those steps is like, yep. okay, let's use our equity-based investment. And that's happening more and more, right, with shareholder activism and yep. all that. Yep. I would argue that's never going to be enough, though. We need I to, agree. And also there's always this trade-off, and that's my real problem with equity-based finance, is that... There's always going to be a trade-off between dividends that go to private owners and that money that could go to social benefit. So all of yeah. the profit that's distributed to private owners is profit that could have been doing good for society. So let's just get rid of that part. You can still maybe have control rights, but I think you know we need to keep those financial yeah. rights and the control rights quite separate. Yeah, I still think, and because the financial sector is so huge, 
with so many people only thinking about risk return and just to do it different, even equity-based, can at least make a small difference at this moment. So I still think it is useful. As So for instance, uh, stakeholder activism, engagement, if done properly, because in most cases it's nothing real, <laughs> I think there is a role just to be a player in that field and to be an agent of change and to show that you can do things differently. I completely agree with you, not in the end stage. Then, yes. then it should be different. But So we can agree that it's a step in the right direction for now, but yes. it's not a step far enough. And we yes. need to push things further. And especially if we're talking then about a degrowth transition. Yeah. We concluded more or less that, yes, there is a lot to do on ownership structures, also in the financial sector. And I agree also that and, and loans, but also then with rights... So not, and no, we didn't touch upon it, but it's not only for me giving the money or has or having the loan, but also your intention as a financial institution, what you want to do with it and also what you do with the profit. I think that's also important to take that along. Yeah. And I think there we also come into like the control rights part of it and being creative yep. about maybe getting like a seat on the board. If you're yep. going to invest enough, even if it's debt based yep. or donation based, yep. maybe you deserve a seat on the board to help guide that organization because you have invested so much. Yeah. So. You can only be responsible as a financial sector if you also take or be an agent of change toward the post-growth society if you take more responsibility than only your risk return profile and wanting to do more with the money. So that's quite essential. Mm. Let's talk about, okay, we are, um, we did not discuss it widely, but I think everybody knows, in a very unsustainable world at the moment. We discussed what should happen. We discussed a little bit of the directions, but I think one of the important questions is what can we do tomorrow if we were in charge? So if you were the president or let's say if you were the autocratic boss of the European Union, which does not exist, but it should help, what on day one, and you could say three things that has to change on day one, what would you change? Maybe let's frame it because authoritarianism is getting kind of scary right now. Let's reframe it as like, what are the demands for three things that yeah, the social movements today can push for? Yeah. <laughs> or, or, but yeah, no, your point is well taken. The first thing I would say is, you know, for degrowth and post-growth more generally is to um, shift the policy goals, which are all now oriented towards economic growth and mm -hmm. competitive markets, shift those away from monetary-based goals to public health goals, right? We want to have, what do we really want? We want to have a healthy society. So we want high levels of public health. And that includes a healthy environment, healthy ecosystems. We can't have healthy people without a healthy planet. So that's the first one. The second one I would say is to shift support from the for-profit economy to not-for-profit economy. And again, this can all happen in stages, right? Yep, but yep. I'm no, talking it's, about... It's, big... it's day one. Oh, day okay, one, day one. Big. Okay, yeah. right. So, okay, I'm the autocrat. I forgot. So, I, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to shift support such as subsidies and tax breaks and seed funding and even like consultation and advice, advisory mm -hmm. support away from for-profit companies and especially starting with the largest for-profit companies to build up the not-for-profit economy. That's what we're going to do. And then lastly, we're going to shift pensions away from stock market into green and social bonds markets so that we can use our pension money to support, again, the building up of a sustainable 
mostly not-for-profit. In fact, we're going to target only not-for-profit because I'm the autocrat businesses and markets. Yeah. Oh, that's, I, I, I like your day one. <laughs> also, the last one, I was thinking, can we not say to the pension funds, the only thing you need to do in the end is to make good circumstances for your pensioners available when they're old. So it can also be affordable housing, can also be, uh, so why should you go to the equity markets to arrange that? You can also invest immediately in the real economy. That would help. Yes, which is basically what that would do, is yeah. going into a bond market, then yeah. you're helping to build up housing and food systems and energy systems and create those transitions that we yeah. really need. So we're going to shift policy goals. So get away from monetary goals going to healthy life in general, nature, healthy people, from for-profit to non-profit. And we're going to shift pension funds, pension money to the real economy. And I think that's a good day one. I want to thank you for your day one. And I thank you for this <laughs> conversation. Thank you, Hans. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Spotify to make sure you don't miss any updates. And as always, we are happy to hear your feedback. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>